and uh, now he's out of the hospital and he's doing really well, so praise the Lord for that. But while I was visiting him at the hospital, ran into his boys and roped him into coming to lead worship, so really glad they were able to do that for sure. And just continue to pray that God will restore George completely. In fact, let's just go ahead and lift him up in prayer right now. Lord, thank you so much for what you've done for George. We know how scary that was and how serious it could have been and had you not had the right people there at the right time. And Lord, it's just confirmation that you're not finished with George yet. And I thank you for showing mercy on him and on his family. And God, continue to strengthen his wife Donna and the boys and George himself to just be patient and to allow you to do your healing and your timing. And we just thank you for the incredible progress that he's made and that he can be at home now. So we just want to give you all the praise and glory for what you've done and for what you're going to do. Now, Lord, we're also grateful that you turned the lights back on for us because that's we appreciate it. And now, Lord, I just pray that you'll turn the light on your word as we begin this study in the book of Romans. Lord, illuminate your word to us. Help us to um, hear from you as we begin this amazing book. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Romans is certainly one of the, if not the most important book in the Bible. It's uh, Paul, Paul wrote Romans, and it's one of the only books he wrote that wasn't specifically a letter to a church about a church, but he really wrote it more as a um, almost a systematic theology or a theological treatise to explain to them what his message is, to explain the gospel. Oh, I should have mentioned if you have kids in here, um, you can let them go. The classes are ready. So that would be fine. So the book of Romans is important because it kind of is the defining work of Paul. Paul talks about the gospel a lot. You've seen that in, in all the books. But, but Romans is where he just completely lays out what it's about and what it means and all the ramifications of it. You have to keep in mind, Paul was a guy who had devoted most of his life to being as devout of a Jew as you could ever be. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. Pharisees were the ones who basically drew a line around themselves and set themselves off as opposed to everyone else because they were so... Um, righteous as far as the law was concerned. But Paul recognized how ultimately the law doesn't satisfy you. Now, everyone has to find this out for themselves sooner or later because all of us have within us a desire to follow some set of rules. And every religion that there's ever been in the world is designed to try to come up with some rules whereby people can find a way to be good, can find a way to get the monkey off your back of feeling like it's not enough, you're coming up short. But that's a real need that we have because our sin keeps us from knowing God. 
what's missing in, in all of our lives if we don't receive Jesus Christ is that relationship that we can have with God. So Paul discovered that in Judaism. When he met Jesus as he was on the road to Syria, ready to go persecute Christians, and Jesus met him personally and confronted him on that road, blinded him and, and called him. And then later, as Paul spent personal time being tutored by Jesus, Paul came up with the strongest and clearest definition of how do you put into context what's happened in the Old Testament with what defines the New Testament today. Jesus came and the Gospels tell the story of Jesus' life and the fact that he was God, that he died and rose from the dead and he's going to come back. All of that is there, but but it takes Paul to really explain what does that have to do with us and how does it all work. Now, all of Paul's epistles are important, but Romans is probably the most important one because he kind of lays it all out and he goes through and he deals extensively with the whole thing about what's up with Israel and the church and how do you make sense of that distinction or is there a distinction and so really important in like chapters 9 through 11 he especially deals with that but most of what he does and there is a lot of important application and things like that too especially as we get towards the end of the book but most of what he does is just lay out in amazing detail the whole plan of salvation and explaining how it is that we can come to know God. Now, sharing with people the gospel, it's easy to do it just from what's contained in Romans. In fact, one method of sharing the gospel with people is called the Roman road because it uses verses from Romans. And it, it goes, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and Come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8, but God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Romans 10.9 and 10, if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so just in those four verses, you have the plan of salvation, but Book of Romans just explains in great detail what that's all about. Many people have called Romans the gospel of Paul because he picks up where the other gospels lead off and his personal contact with Jesus Christ and the things that Jesus taught him. And then he lays it out in a way that you know, when we talk about, oh, it's a deep theological book, we expect it to be difficult and dry and all the things that we associate with theology. But it isn't that at all. It's, it's a book that lays it out very clearly and the lessons that we see in Romans from the fact that man has fallen and is messed up, the fact that Jesus died so that 
we could be forgiven, all of the understanding of the struggle of the Christian life, how it is that we can get freed up from the power of sin in our lives, and, and just all of that is laid out in a very understandable way. Martin Luther called the book of Romans the most important book in the Bible, and a lot of other people have said that too. Um, John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, it said Chrysostom used to have someone read him the book of Romans out loud once a week. And uh, Chrysostom was a great disciple of John the Apostle himself. And so uh, that tells you something about it. But when you, when you get into it, the hard thing is it's almost easy to not see the forest for the trees. There's so much in the book of Romans that we're going to discipline ourselves to try to move through it at a halfway decent pace because, and it's notorious for pastors just taking years to go through the book of Romans. And, and that can be legitimate, but when you do that, sometimes you zoom in so close, you miss the big picture, and it's important for us to get the big picture. Most of Paul's other letters, like I say, were written to a specific church and generally with a specific um, need or problems that were going on in their church. Ephesians is somewhat of an exception because it was written to a whole group of churches in Ephesus. But the other unique thing about Romans is that it's the only book that Paul wrote a letter to and he didn't start their church. All the other churches of Philippi and Colossae and Ephesus and Corinth, all of these were, were churches that Paul started. And so he had been there for some period of time, had taught them, and then his epistles that he wrote to them, the letters that he wrote to them, were to kind of fill in some gaps and to help them out. But the church in Rome, as you know, Rome was the center of the Roman Empire. Paul hadn't been to Rome yet which is kind of interesting when you think about it. Paul was a Roman citizen, though a devout Jew. He was also a freeborn Roman citizen. And so Rome would be a big deal to him. And we see in the book of Romans how he, he lets them know he really wants to come to Rome. He's looking forward to it. He's made plans. It hasn't worked out yet, but he really wants to come to Rome to minister to the Christians there, even though that wasn't a church that he started. No one knows who started the church in Rome, but with all of the trade that was going on after the day of Pentecost, no doubt some people who got saved um, there in Jerusalem probably took the word back to Rome, and there was a large church there, and, and uh, of course, as the center of the empire, it was an important place um, in, in everyone's mind. And so Paul, you can understand why it was a big deal to him to want to write to them. It's one of the books that uses, that quotes Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Paul quotes it in Romans chapter one. He quotes it as well in Galatians. He quotes it also in, um, in uh, the book of Hebrews, if he wrote Hebrews, it's one of the reasons I think he did, is because that verse is quoted there as well. But it's all about how to, how to live by the gospel. He didn't want to just tell them things that 
they needed to know, but he wanted to teach them how it is that you actually live by faith and living by the gospel. So it was important to understand that the gospel was a free gift from God, that it wasn't something that you can earn. Um, It was important to get the gospel clear as to what it is and what it isn't, and, and then to apply that in just a lot of different ways. So it's an amazing book, and we'll just dive right into it here. Romans chapter 1. Now, the other thing to remember, and I think you notice it, he, he starts the book rather than insisting on his authority and telling them what they need to do. You can almost sense that he is, and perhaps he was actually writing the book as sort of an introduction to the people in Rome because he was planning on eventually going there. But he's sort of introducing himself and not wanting to push himself on them and not wanting to be overly familiar. He was writing this book um, from the city of Corinth when he was living in Corinth. Later he would end up, of course, coming to Rome, but as a prisoner, and then he would have a lot of contact with these people. But at this point, keep in mind, these are people who he doesn't know, and he's just sending this letter. They had no doubt heard about him, but probably a lot of them had heard bad things about him and were a bit ambivalent too, and so he's just introducing himself to them. book was written about between 55 and 58 A.D., so about 20 years into Paul's ministry. And he introduces himself, as he often does, as a bondservant. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Calling yourself a bondservant What a bondservant was, and there were different categories of bondservant, but the main point of being a bondservant is you don't own anything. If you're a bondservant of someone else, they basically own you, and whatever you have is just theirs. And Paul truly saw himself as a servant. There's nothing more impressive than to see someone who really is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more disgusting than people who pretend to be bondservants of Jesus Christ, and yet they're hanging on to their own stuff, they're hanging on to their own desires and will and things like that. We should aspire to be bondservants of Jesus Christ, but we shouldn't say that lightly without recognizing what it all means. Um, To really be a bondservant means whatever you say, God, that's what I'm going to do. I work for you, and I'm going to do whatever you call me to do. I'm going to go wherever you call me to go. I don't have the power of veto over what you want me to do. Everything I have is yours. Everything I am is yours. I'm a bondservant. And, but he also saw, not only was he a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and by the way, you'll see Paul use the term Jesus Christ, you'll see him use the term Christ Jesus, and you'll see him use the term Lord Jesus Christ, and he'll use all of those quite a bit. Generally, when he calls him Jesus Christ, 
he's referring first to the fact that Jesus was a man, but also that he was the Messiah. When he refers to him as Christ Jesus, it's the idea that he was the Christ as being stated up front. And of course, Lord Jesus Christ is really emphasizing lordship. But, he, but Paul knew that he was called to be an apostle. We're all called to be something. We've been seeing this in the book of Ephesians as we've been studying it on Sunday mornings that each one of us has a call on our life. Each one of us, there's a reason why God has called us out, why he has singled us out, out from the herd and said, you're mine. And he doesn't just call you for salvation. That's a part of it, but it's really just a small part of it. God has a, a purpose for your life. God has a calling on your life. And Paul had come to understand that his calling was as an apostle. The word apostle just means one who is sent. Um, Paul knew that he had a mission. Paul understood that he was called in order to go out. He was sent. And so he didn't have to apologize for reaching out in ministry wherever he was because God had called him. Jesus Christ himself had personally called him as an apostle. But it's so important for each of us to discover what has he called us to? What has he called us to be? Often you don't discover God's real calling on your life until you first come to the point where you are his bondservant. Ultimately, it starts out with saying, I'll do whatever you want, and then he begins to show you what he wants. God doesn't want to tell you a bunch of stuff that he wants you to do and then only to find out that you're just not going to do it anyway. And I think a lot of times when we struggle with knowing God's will, so often it, we need to back up a little bit because it isn't just that we don't know his will. Often when we don't know his will, it's because we've already decided there are certain things we aren't willing to do. And so usually what happens is we want God's blessing on what we want to do. And so we decide, here's what I want. Here's what I'm deciding that I'm calling myself to. Now, God, will you do this for me? And so often when we find ourselves banging into repeated series of closed doors and we're just really trying to do something and it's just not happening... A part of it is that we need to back up a little bit and find out, is this really my calling or not? And the way to find that out is to first make yourself a servant, make yourself willing. I, I often, when I'm counseling people and they have big life decisions to make, I point out to them, start with this. If you're thinking maybe you'll do this and maybe you'll do that, Get yourself to the point where you're totally willing to do either one. In fact, get yourself to the point where you don't even really have a preference. It's not like, oh God, I want to do this so bad and I sure would hate to do that. But be willing. That's, that's the battle and that's a battle that has to do with are you really a bondservant or not? That's what will really show you. And I, and I talk to people almost every day who sincerely want to know God's will, 
but they haven't brought themselves to the point where if certain things are his will, they would be willing to do it. It's a lot better to decide to do whatever God wants you to do before you even know what the options are. Get that settled. Once you figure out you're a bondservant, then the calling becomes pretty clear. If you get goofed up on calling, it's usually because you're not listening to him. He really isn't the Lord. He really isn't the master. You've decided that there's a calling that you want, or maybe even you've listened to other people who are telling you what your calling is. And when it comes to a lifetime commitment, life is just way too important for you to do it your own way. And it may very well be that what you want to do is exactly what he wants you to do because he may be giving you the desire for that. But it's really a bad deal when you haven't resolved that issue first and then you find yourself just constantly knocking on doors that don't open, constantly trying to make something work and it's not working, and you pray harder and harder and you're striving and you're when you're in that spot, something's wrong. And if something's wrong, I say back up and decide that you'll do anything. That any option is back on the table. And now you're in a good place to be a real servant. But Paul knew his calling, and it was as an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. He understood that God picked him, called him, and chose him out and was doing something unique in his life. Now, he doesn't mean separated in the sense that I don't have anything to do with anybody else. But the idea is, and this is true for each of us, God has a separate and individual calling on each of our lives. And we each need to hear from God. Somebody else can't tell you what God wants you to do. God wants to tell you personally. And so, obviously, a part of this is, if you don't get off and get alone with God and spend time with Him, then you're not going to be able to hear His voice as He has separated you out and called you to something. And so, your calling is something that's uniquely yours. <clears throat> and he, was, he knew that the reason He was separated is for the gospel of God, the word gospel is just good message or good news. But it was important that he knew this wasn't his gospel. This isn't the gospel of Paul. This is the gospel of God. This is a gospel that comes from God. It's God's good news. And so he realized that for his life, that's what matters. That's what he's going after. That's the center and the focus of his life, and so often he pointed out that that's what he preaches, is that gospel, but it's the gospel of God, which he promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So he says, this isn't something new. This radically has to do with the Old Testament also. All the gospel is is the culmination of what God was trying to say all along throughout the Old Testament, through the prophets. The Old Testament's important. Often, you know, we think in terms of, you know, let's just jump right to the New Testament because that's where all the good stuff is. The Old Testament, 
It's kind of old school, and, and it's not as relevant today. Well, I mean, we've spent most of the last six years as a church studying the Old Testament, so obviously I think it's important. But the reason it's important is because that's where all the seeds of the gospel lie. It's, it's all there. Remember when, when Paul and Peter and John, when they would preach, they didn't have the New Testament. For them, the Bible was the Old Testament, and so the Old Testament's still vitally important. Um, the New Testament gives it, gives it context and explanation and application. But I had a Hebrew teacher in seminary who used to say that he was always harping on how important the Old Testament was, and he would call the New Testament the postscript. Like it was just thrown on in addition to it. But Paul said this is something that God talked about from the beginning. Of course, the gospel first pops up probably in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when the Lord is, is judging, cursing the serpent, and he lets out that hint that there's going to be a seed of woman who would have his heel bruised by the serpent, but he would crush the head of the serpent. And that was what we call proto-evangelicum, or the first good news. Um, but all through the Old Testament, the message was there. And when you read the Gospels and you see how many Old Testament quotes there are, you get it. Paul knew the Old Testament well and saw that this was a continuation of it. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So now he's talking about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, but he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So here you have Jesus as God, Jesus as the Lord, but you also have Jesus as a man a man who had the right to inherit the mantle of, of David. Because through his mother Mary, you can trace his genealogy back to um, King David. Now through his stepfather, Joseph, it also traces back to David as well. And you might go, why do we even have that genealogy there in Matthew chapter 1? Well, it's because... He gets the legal right through inheritance to, to the throne by being related to David through his adoptive father. But he has that biological connection to David through his mother Mary. And so Paul is bringing that up right away just so that they would be clear who Jesus is, that he's God and that he's man. And uh, he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, Remember how mad the Jews were at the Christians in those days? I mean, Christianity was a natural outflowing of Judaism and should have been the continuation of Judaism. But for the most part, the Jews rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Now, as they continued to, to assert that Jesus was the son of David, would have been pretty easy for the Jews to refute that if they could. And they certainly would have had every motivation to do so 
And yet, they didn't even try to do that because they knew that that was true. But he was not only born of the seed of David, he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So he was God, and that was proven by the fact that he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. With that demonstration of power, now again, Paul, notice how many important doctrines he's introduced just in the introduction to the book. How important it is that if Jesus wasn't a man, then he couldn't be the Messiah because the Messiah was of the seed of David. He also couldn't die for our sins. But if he wasn't God, his life wouldn't have the quality to be able to die for our sins. And so he makes it clear that he's also God, the Son of God. Now, he also gives the doctrine of the resurrection and says how important it is. We know who he is by the fact that he was raised from the dead. And, and uh, then he says, and through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Boy, there's a lot in that verse. Through him we have received grace. The, the reception of it is, is twofold. It's not something that we did. It's something that he gave to us and we receive it. But at the same time, the word therefore receive implies that you have to take it, that you receive it, not just that you passively had it happen to you, and salvation isn't something that God just chooses you, you're saved whether you like it or not. Maybe you'll know it, maybe you don't. No, it's, it's an act of reception. We received. In the same way that John said in John chapter 1, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. And so, again, here you have the idea that it's something that we get from him, but it's also the idea that it's something that we choose to accept from him. We've received grace and apostleship. So God shows his grace. It's all free. He didn't earn his apostleship. He isn't an apostle because he was better than most people. He would say that he was worse than most. He was killing Christians. And yet, he says, it's through Jesus Christ that we receive grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. We're saved by grace through faith. But obedience, as we're going to see in this book, has a huge place as well. Never obedience in order for us to earn something from God. That's not it. And yet obedience is something that shows that the faith is real. And so... He, he'll talk about this quite a bit. Now, it's interesting where, notice that that's kind of a unique phrase for obedience to the faith. But turn over to the last chapter of Romans. The only other place where this terminology is used. <clears throat> 